uh, we come to Genesis 40. And in a sense, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit tonight. Uh, We spent uh, really four messages on Genesis 39, uh, because there was much there for us to to think about, to talk about. Uh, We're going to spend only one message, uh, tonight's message, on Genesis 40. Uh, But as we go through it, I think you'll see why it is one uh, message as a chapter. And uh, and so we're going to do all of Genesis 40 tonight. And uh, because we are covering a whole chapter, I'm not going to read the text at the beginning. We're going to read the text as we walk through the chapter together. Uh, To get you ready for this, Joseph has now been in Egypt for more than a decade. So in Genesis 39, in that period of time when Joseph was in Potiphar's house, and then he was thrown into prison... And now he's been in prison for a while. It has now been over 10 years that Joseph has been in captivity in Egypt. Uh, By the time he gets out of prison, uh, we know it will have been 13 years total. Now, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us how much of that time was in Potiphar's house and how much of that time was in prison. We don't know that. All we know is that altogether he will spend 13 years in captivity in Egypt before he is released from prison and, uh, and is exalted in Egypt. Now tonight, what we're going to see is God setting the stage for Joseph's freedom and his rise to power. Now Joseph is not going to get out of prison tonight. That, that doesn't happen in this chapter. What does happen is an act of providence that sets into motion the events that will lead to Joseph being set free from prison. Now, the plan is this. First, we're going to walk our way through this chapter. Uh, Then second, I want to address an issue that comes up in this chapter, namely uh, the issue of dreams. Uh, Dreams play a prominent place uh, have play a, a prominent role in the story of Joseph. We've already seen dreams uh, play significantly in the story. It's going to happen again tonight. It's going to happen again in future chapters. And so I want to take a few minutes tonight to think about how we as Christians should think about dreams and our own dreams. And then finally, at the very end, I want to just remind us again of the main doctrine of this chapter, which happens to be the main doctrine of all of Genesis 37 through 50, the wonderful doctrine of the sweet providence of God. So that's where we're going. Let's begin by walking through Genesis 40 together. Now remember, Joseph has continued to be a man of integrity, a man who is resting in God, a man who, who believes that his God has not forsaken him in this foreign land. And even though he is a prisoner, by this point he has now been given charge by the prison warden over the prison and over the other prisoners. Uh, just as he became the right-hand man of Potiphar as a slave in Potiphar's house, he's now become the right-hand man of the prison warden in this prison. And so it's in that context that we pick up the story. So let's pick up in verse 1. Verse 1. Well, sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. 
the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them, and they continued for some time in custody. Now just stop there, because there's, there's a lot to note there. Um, the first person we meet here is the chief cupbearer. Kings throughout history have feared being assassinated through poison. And so Pharaoh's cupbearer was responsible for all of his drink. This man was responsible for protecting Pharaoh's wine and therefore protecting Pharaoh's life. Uh, The king's security was in the hands of the cupbearer, at least partially. And so this was considered a very significant position. To be a a cupbearer to the king was not a small thing. It was a very elevated position. In fact, we have Egyptian texts that tell us that cupbearers were often very wealthy and often very influential. Uh, John Kitchen, an Old Testament scholar, says of cupbearers, quote, These officials, often foreigners, became in many cases confidants and favorites of the king, and wielded political influence. And John Currid and other claims that a Pharaoh's cupbearer was often such a trusted advisor and wielded such authority that he would be considered something like a prime minister or like a governor in our own day. And so this is a significant man, this cupbearer, who has now been thrown into the king's prison. The other man we meet is the chief baker. And like the cupbearer, this man held an esteemed position. He was responsible for the king's food, just like the cupbearer was responsible for the king's drink. Uh, Bruce Waltke says, Both men had close access to Pharaoh. Both men could have played a sinister role in a conspiracy against him. So to have this position was to be trusted by the Pharaoh with his life. And you can understand why a Pharaoh suspected either of these men to be involved in any conspiracy against him. Uh, It should not surprise us that they would be thrown into the king's prison. Uh, This helps explain, by the way, why Joseph was given instructions by the prison warden to pay special attention to these two men and to serve them even while they were in prison. Because these men were very powerful. And if these men had a bad experience in prison, and then Pharaoh reinstated them to their positions, it was likely that the prison warden would then be in trouble with these men. And so Joseph has given special instructions, take care of these men while they're here in prison. Make sure that their needs are met. Attend to them. Now, we are never told what these two men were charged with doing. Um, I will explain later uh, when we get to those verses that I think it's very possible that there had been some sort of an attempt on the Pharaoh's life. And it was suspected that at least one of these two men were involved. Uh, We are told that they were placed in custody, likely meaning that they were awaiting sentencing. So they are in prison waiting for the day when Pharaoh will declare what is to become of them. Interestingly, this word, the same word custody, um, is also used of Joseph in verse 6, seeming to indicate that Potiphar may actually have put Joseph in prison until he decided what to do with him. So we mentioned this morning that it was a strange thing for Potiphar to put Joseph in prison rather than to kill him if he really believed Joseph had committed the crime against his wife. Well, it's very possible that Potiphar put Joseph in prison saying... 
I need time to decide what I believe and to deal with you. And then he just left him there. And now years have gone by and Joseph has remained in prison, not uh, officially condemned of any crime, but just there awaiting Potiphar's decision and he's been left there. Uh, It is worth noting that the prison house was actually a part of the property of Potiphar, perhaps even a part of Potiphar's house. Uh, Either way, in his position as head of Pharaoh's security, it was Potiphar who was primarily responsible for this prison. So we have Potiphar who's over the prison, the prison warden who works for Potiphar, and now Joseph who is serving the prison warden. We mentioned before that Joseph, I'm sorry, that Potiphar likely did not fully believe his wife's story concerning Joseph. And it may have been that he decided that if Joseph could no longer continue helping him manage his household, he would put Joseph in prison and let Joseph continue to help manage uh, the prison there. Now, verses 5 through 8. Let's pick it up. Verse 5. We have the cupbearer. We have the chief baker. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. To just stop there. It was very clear that these dreams were not normal dreams. Uh, There were several indications that these dreams were prophetic. Uh, Throughout the story of Joseph, prophetic dreams always come in pairs. And that's the way it happens here again. Two men both dream very strange dreams on the same night. Um, They were similar dreams. Uh, It was widely believed in the ancient world that dreams contained messages from the gods. Uh, We know that Egyptians held this belief from at least the beginning of the Middle Kingdom, which is the kingdom Joseph comes into. So at least several hundred years before this account, we know that Egyptians took dreams to be messages from the gods. And because of this, they considered those who were skilled in interpreting dreams to be exalted men. Uh, You were considered an, an esteemed person if you were skilled in the art of interpreting dreams. In fact, these men were often considered to be the same as prophets because through their gift of interpretation, they could deliver to you the message that the gods were sending to you through your dream. Now, at the very least, these dream interpreters were simply using human tricks, human uh, techniques to give interpretations to these dreams. At the very worst, uh, we have men who were dealing with the demonic. Uh, in bringing interpretations to people's dreams. Archaeologists have uncovered texts from ancient Egypt that were meant to help people interpret their dreams. So, for example, one of the most famous documents that we have from ancient Egypt is called the Chester Beatty Papyrus Number no. 3, Chester Beatty being the guy who found it. And in one column, 
It lists what a man might see himself doing in a dream. And in the other column, it lists whether that is a good omen or a bad omen and what it means. So, for example, in one column, the papyrus says, if a man sees himself in his dream seeing a large cat, and then you go to the other column and it says, that is a good omen. It means a large harvest is coming your way. Another example says in the first column, if a man sees himself seeing his face in a mirror. Go over to the other column, it says, this is a bad omen because it means yet another wife. So, ha, ha, ha. Okay, so here the cupbearer and the chief baker are troubled because they know they've had dreams that are unique. They believe the gods are sending to them a message through their dream, but because they're in prison, they have no access to an interpreter. The fact that Joseph noticed that they were troubled, the fact that Joseph noticed that their faces were downcast and asked them what was going on and offered to help them, that tells us more about the faithfulness of Joseph's character. Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Joseph's argument was a simple one. If God has chosen to speak to you a prophetic word through a dream, then wouldn't it make sense to look to him to provide the interpretation? After all, who would know the interpretation of your dream better than the one who gave you your dream? Moreover, if God truly gave you a dream in order to communicate something to you, wouldn't you expect him to provide someone to you in your midst to give you the interpretation? So Joseph knows God. Joseph walks with God. Joseph has had dealings with prophetic dreams from God in the past. And so it makes sense that he would be the one that God would give an interpretation to. So let's look at the dream of the cupbearer and the interpretation that God then gives to Joseph to give to this man. So let's begin reading in verse 9. Verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. So these verses are pretty self-explanatory. I'm just going to make a couple of points. Notice first the confidence of Joseph. One of the key aspects of prophets in the Bible is that when they spoke, they spoke with divine authority. And Joseph says in verse 12, immediately after hearing the dream, this is its interpretation. Joseph does not say, here's what I think your dream might mean. Or, have you considered the possibility that this is what God is telling you? No, he says, this 
is your dream's interpretation. And so this was divine authority. This was confidence. Um, And it's the same confidence that we see in verse 14 when Joseph asked the cupbearer to remember him when he is reinstated to Pharaoh's service. So Joseph is so sure that God has given him the true interpretation that he speaks of it as, as, as it coming to pass and he speaks of it matter-of-factly. Only remember me when it is well with you. It's going to happen. You're going to be back before Pharaoh. When it does, make sure you remember me. Let him know that I've been put here unjustly. So Joseph has no doubts concerning the interpretation he has given. He knows that this has come from God. That is a mark of prophecy in the Bible. The other point I'll make about these verses is simply a a neat curiosity, which is that when Joseph refers to the prison in verse 15, he refers to it as the pit. Um, This is the exact same word used back in Genesis 37 when Joseph's brothers actually threw him into a pit. And so in Joseph's mind, he was first thrown into a pit in Canaan unjustly. And now he has been thrown into a pit in Egypt, again, unjustly. So the cupbearer gets a wonderful interpretation. He's going to be reinstated to his office. So you can understand the cupbearer is like, let me tell you mine. Well, let's see what happens, beginning in verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. You can imagine how shocked the chief baker must have been to hear this. He had just heard such a a wonderful interpretation given to his colleague. The cupbearer will again stand before Pharaoh. And what does the baker get? The birds will eat your flesh. By the way, the words translated uh, in the ESV as hang you on a tree are probably better translated as you will be impaled on a stake. Um, And so this was not a pleasant word uh, that he was receiving from God. Now, when we hear this, we might think that Pharaoh was simply making a rash decision. He just chose to reinstate one and to kill the other. Like it was was on a whim, Pharaoh said, I think I'll let the cupbearer come back up and I think I'll let the baker die. As if it was just on a whim. But I don't think that's true. In fact, the dreams probably indicate that Pharaoh was making the right decision in these sentences that he was handing down. In the cupbearer's dream, it is the cupbearer who takes the grapes. It is the cupbearer who presses them into Pharaoh's cup and then places the cup into Pharaoh's hands. In other words, in the cupbearer's dream, he is faithfully fulfilling his responsibilities. The wine is never out of his control. It is being kept secure for the Pharaoh. He is protecting the king. On the other hand, in the baker's dream, we have a basket full of food for Pharaoh, but it's not being protected. 
It's being picked over by the birds. The basket is on his head, and others have access to it. The birds are are eating of the bread. This may very well have been God's way of revealing to Joseph that it was the baker who was truly guilty for the crime for which these two men had been placed into custody. And so when Pharaoh gave his judgment, it is likely that he had gotten to the bottom of the story and that it was indeed the baker who had not protected his food. And that's why the baker was given the sentence of death. Let's see that sentence come down, beginning in verse 20. Beginning in verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged, or maybe better translated, impaled, the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So there are really two key points here. First, Joseph had been a true prophet. Joseph's interpretations were truly given to him by God. Every word proved accurate. And second, at least for now, the cupbearer has already forgotten about Joseph. In his joy of being reinstated, the man forgot the prisoner who had revealed to him his fate. And so Joseph is forgotten, at least for now, in the prison. Now, the title for this sermon is The Interpretation of Dreams. And that title comes from a book by Sigmund Freud, in fact, one of his most influential books. Uh, It was in The Interpretation of Dreams that we first find Freud introducing some of his most important theories. Perhaps you've heard of the Oedipus Complex, for example. Uh, That was in that book. Uh, He taught that dreams are a form of wish fulfillment in which the unconscious through dreams, is trying to resolve conflicts. Freud taught that when we dream, our unconscious is looking to the past and trying to figure out what we should have done in this situation, whether it be a past situation or a present situation or one that we know is coming up. However, he said that while our conscious selves, our conscious selves are civilized, he said our unconscious selves are not civilized. And often the issues and the resolutions that our unconscious is dealing with are so traumatic and so outright disturbing that there is a part of us, Freud called it the preconscious, that censors uh, what our unconscious is thinking. And the preconscious will not let what is happening in the unconscious come to our conscious without it being made acceptable through the filter. And thus, Freud taught this that your dreams are full of symbols, that everything you dream about is symbolic for things that are happening in your unconscious that are so traumatic or so grotesque or so shocking that it's being turned into symbols so that you can process it in your dreams. And therefore, Freud called dreams the royal road to the unconscious. He believed and taught that by analyzing our dreams, we could learn what is really troubling us deep down. In fact, in the last edition of The Interpretation of Dreams, Freud included an appendix in which he explained 
Much like the Egyptian papyrus we, we talked about earlier, he had a, a, an appendix that said, if you dream this, that is usually a symbol for this, and gave you a key for interpreting your dreams to figure out what's really going on with you. Now, I am not an expert on Freud by any stretch of the imagination. What I just told you came straight from Wikipedia, so take that for what it's worth. But what is interesting about all this is that Freud impacted millions of people with these theories, so that even today there are many, many people who are absolutely convinced that by analyzing our dreams, we can find the answers to our greatest problems. So, go to Amazon.com and under books, search the word dreams. Here are, the, here are six of the top seven results. Number one, dream sight, a dictionary and guide for interpreting any dream. Number two, the complete dream book, discover what your dreams reveal about you and your life. Book three, 10,000 dreams interpreted. Number four, dream psychology, which by the way is another Sigmund Freud book. Number five, the dream book, symbols for self-understanding. And number six, the dream dictionary, an A to Z guide to understanding your unconscious mind. Now, is it not interesting that our society exists more than 4,000 years after the beginning of the Middle Kingdom in Egypt, and yet in the end, our society's view of dreams is still very similar to those of pagan Egypt all those centuries ago. The only difference is that ancient Egypt believed that your dreams are a message from the gods. Our society believes that our dreams are a message from our own unconscious. In other words, our culture believes that the truth we need to discover, the truth we need to understand to solve our problems is not coming from God's, but is coming from deep within ourselves. And if we can unpack our dreams, we can figure out what's really going on in our hearts. Ancient Egypt had men who were practiced at the art of interpreting dreams, and modern America has many psychologists and psychoanalysts who are practiced at the arts of interpreting dreams and letting people know, here's what your subconscious is telling you. Ancient Egyptians used these interpretations to make important decisions about their lives, and unfortunately, there are still many modern Americans who analyze their dreams, get an interpretation, and use that to make important decisions for their lives. Ancient Egypt believed that dreams were symbolic and provided keys for you to know what those symbols meant. As I just showed you, modern Americans believe often that dreams are symbolic and have keys to help you unpack your dreams. And so as they say, the more things change, the more things stay the same. We really still live in a society that has a very pagan view of what dreams are. So what about us as Christians? How are we to look at our dreams? Well, I want to say four things that I think are biblical truths concerning the way we should look at our dreams. Number one, I have to say this first, God's prophetic revelation to man has come to its fullness in the Scriptures. God's prophetic revelation to man has come to its fullness in the Scriptures. Hebrews 1.1 Long ago, at many times and in many ways, including dreams, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So in the Old Testament, God spoke through prophets. Often these included speaking to prophets through dreams. In Joseph's case, the dreams didn't even come to him, but to others. But he fulfilled a prophetic office as God gave to him an infallible interpretation of those dreams. More common was for God to give the dream to the prophets themselves. Remember what a prophet is. In the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, prophets were people who could speak a message from God with both infallibility, no error, and divine authority. The message delivered by a prophet could be said as, Thus saith the Lord, and it was absolutely true. In fact, in the Old Testament, if a person came and claimed to speak a message from God, and that message proved to be false, God's people were to execute that person. To claim that God had spoken when God had not spoken was a capital offense. We need to remember that when we're prone to say to people, I think God is telling me to tell you this. If it's not in the Bible, be very careful with what you're about to say after that point. Jesus is the ultimate prophet, the very word of God himself. Until Jesus, there was a progression of revelation as God revealed more and more about himself and about salvation over hundreds of years. But Jesus is the best and the final word from God. Progressive revelation has come to an end Jesus revealed his truth through his own apostles and prophets and to the canonization of Scripture. And now the Word of God is complete and sufficient. It is to the Scriptures that we are to look. And God has even threatened a curse on anyone who would dare to add to or take away from the Scriptures. Now, this is a big subject. Does God still give new revelation today? Um, and so we talked about this in uh, winter of 2011. Sermons are online. I would encourage you to go there if you still have questions about that, or I'll be happy to, to talk to you. But it is my understanding that we are not to look to our dreams as prophetic words from God. As you'll see in a moment, I do believe that there might be some benefit found by considering our dreams. Um, but we must not ever think of our dreams as God has given me a special message revealing truth from heaven. God did communicate that way in the past, but we have something more sure. The prophetic word in the pages of the Bible to which Peter says we would do well to pay attention. So we have to say that first. That's numero uno. Number two. Number two. Our dreams are appointed for us by God in the same way that every aspect of our lives are appointed for us by God. So let me say that again. Our dreams are appointed for us by God in the same way that every other aspect of our lives are appointed for us by God. So it would be wrong for me to stand here and say, your dreams mean nothing and God has nothing to do with them. That would be wrong because God is sovereign. He's ordained everything that comes to pass, which means... He appointed for you to have the dream that you had last night and for someone else to have the dream that they had. That was a part of His sovereign will. He has ordained all that comes to pass. So, so why did you have a vivid dream that you can remember well on this night and, and this night you don't remember anything? Well, ultimately, behind every other reason, there is the sovereign will of God. 
Now, what I think this means is that we should read our dreams the way we would read every other providence of God in our lives. Um, so, today you were in a store, okay, and you ran into an old friend. Hmm, okay, God, what are you up to here? I hadn't seen so-and-so in years, and, and suddenly there that person is. God, what might you be doing there? Or, or, yesterday I read this quote, and it continues to come up into my mind. It just continues to pop up. God, what, what are you doing there? Why, why is that? Well, we can think of dreams the same way. We think about these other events in our lives. Yes, God's hand is behind, is behind it. And maybe we should consider what God is up to. So read your dreams like you would read Providence, which means knowing that you're not infallible. Knowing that you can do your best to figure out what God is telling you, not telling you, what God is doing in your dreams, um, but you know that you can't hold this up as some sort of infallible standard. You may have a guess as to why you met that friend in the store that you haven't seen in years. God, what are you up to there? Hmm, I wonder if God is doing this. Or you may have a guess as to why that quote keeps popping up in your mind. Well, God, I think maybe, maybe this is what you're doing. You may have a guess as to why God gave you that dream at that time. But don't ever elevate your reading of providence to the place where you say, Thus saith the Lord. We do not have that right or that authority. Ultimately, the Bible and the Bible alone should govern and guide our lives. Now, number three. We can analyze our dreams to learn about ourselves. But don't shock anybody by saying that. Number three, we can analyze our dreams to learn about ourselves. Freud was wrong about a lot of things, as is becoming more and more clear. But Freud was likely right that our dreams do spring up from within our own consciences and tell us something about ourselves. Uh, he, he said, your dreams come from your unconscious. I think a better way of saying that would be, our dreams come from within our own hearts. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, you have thoughts. Out of the heart, you have dreams. And so one of the reasons that God might help you or have you to remember certain dreams is that in that you can see kind of something that's going on in your heart. So for example, um, and please hear this, don't analyze your dream for a prophetic word from God for your future, but rather consider if your dream might be revealing something to you Maybe about some sin that you need to deal with, right? Uh, what do your dreams say about what you're longing for? Uh, do you find your dreams to be full of anger? Do you find your dreams to be full of stress or, or full of lust or full of despair? Could it be that what you're experiencing in your dreams is telling you about something in your heart that you need to deal with even when you're awake, right? Maybe these things are coming out in your own life and you just haven't realized it. And so there, there may be a place for analyzing our dreams to see something of what's going on in our hearts. But finally, number four, we should be sober-minded and cautious concerning our dreams. We should be sober-minded and cautious concerning our dreams. Don't ever let a dream you had become the basis of an important decision in your life. A dream might give hints as to what's going on in your heart, but you should look elsewhere for firmer proof because dreams can be strange can't they I mean, we've all had dreams where we're flying through the air or falling down or you know something like that and so uh, we need to understand that that we ought not to base any important life decisions uh, on anything that we have 
in a dream. We are to look to God, and if we want to know more about ourselves, we can see what's going on in our dreams, but we really ought to be looking at our words, at our actions, at the way we live every day. That's really the fruit where we can see what's going on in our hearts. Ultimately, test everything by the Scriptures. All right, close with this. What is the main doctrine of Genesis 40? And I said at the beginning of this message, God is setting the stage for Joseph's release, for his rise to power. Joseph doesn't know it yet, but the events we just read about in chapter 40 were a part of God's plan to put Joseph right into the path of Pharaoh, ultimately for the salvation of Joseph's family. Remember, the big picture, though nobody in the story knows it yet, is that a severe famine is coming. A famine that will threaten to kill God's chosen family. The family through whom God has promised the Messiah is going to have their lives threatened by a famine. And everything that is happening, especially in Genesis 40, is putting Joseph right into the the, the sight of Pharaoh so that he will be elevated at just the right time to save this family, the family of the Messiah, from starvation. This is also about getting his people to Egypt so that 400 years from now, God can then show his glory and how it surpasses that of Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt as he saves his people from bondage in that land. So Joseph knows none of that, but God is working out his sovereign plan. And though the cupbearer may have forgotten Joseph, Joseph's God has not forgotten him. And that's true for us as well. Ultimately, because of Christ, the words that God spoke to Jeremiah can be spoken of us. God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So even if you and I cannot see it right now, As believers on Jesus, especially in the tough moments, we have good reason to be patient and to trust. And so we've quoted these words many times, but I want to close tonight by quoting them again. One Undoubtedly one of the most precious hymns ever written on the providence of God. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Listen to this. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, for the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace, for behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour, and the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain, but God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Joseph feels forgotten. God, where are you? He doesn't feel forgotten, but we're told that the cupbearer forgot him, and yet his God was with him. And everything that happened in Genesis 40 makes Genesis 41 possible. And that's where Joseph will be exalted. And so it will be with us. You can't see it right now, but God is working out His plan for you. And ultimately, it is a plan to exalt you by God's grace.
All right, let's pray.